Hello, and welcome to Industry Elites. On this podcast, Industry Elite's very own Natalie and Vicky are going to be interviewing business owners and individuals who have made their mark in their respective industries. Dr. Sean Joseph's passion for equality and social justice has led him to serve in a number of positions in the world of education. After graduating from Lincoln University, he earned a master's degree from John Hopkins University and a doctoral degree in educational administration and policy studies from George Washington. He has been an English teacher, school administrator, central office administrator, and superintendent in Maryland, Delaware, and Tennessee. His most recent work as superintendent of Metro Nashville Public Schools, director of Metro Nashville Public Schools, resulted in schools that became more equitable as the district saw accelerated growth for all student groups in both reading and mathematics pre-K through grade 5. A published author, his most recent book is Finding the Joseph Within, Lessons Learned Through a Life of Struggle, a Memoir of Faith and Perseverance. While Joseph recently took a tenor-track position at Howard University's Graduate School of Education, he manages Joseph & Associates as a consulting firm focusing on expanding equity within education. Hi everyone, on this week's episode of Industry Elites, Vicki and I are very pleased to welcome Dr. Sean Joseph on the podcast today. Welcome Dr. Sean, how are you doing today? Hey, I'm great, how are you doing? Doing great. So we're so glad that we obviously have you joining us today. And one of the first things we always ask our guests is, how has COVID treated them? So in each aspect of this, obviously, somewhere at the beginning of this pandemic, and obviously now maybe it's a little bit more normalized for individuals, but we're always curious as everybody lives in different states and different provinces. So we really want to hear the inside scoop from you on how you've been doing on that sense. Yeah, no, no, God is good. And I'm thankful that I've been healthy, my family's been healthy, and I don't know anyone that has seriously been ill uh, with mm-hmm. COVID, so, so I'm very fortunate in that regard. Just this time we've talked about, a lot of times people have used this time to really just reevaluate what they've been doing and really appreciating those smaller things. So have you used this time to evaluate any of your work or really take into a deeper dive another area of work that you were interested in kind of visiting, but you hadn't had the opportunity to visit that beforehand? No, COVID has definitely slowed me down a lot, which is good because I was running 100 miles an hour. So, so it's it's been good to have you know the time to think and and to really refocus. So uh, the experience being home and working from home, I love it. I don't ever want to go back to a building. Yeah, we definitely don't either. It's way more helpful for that work-life balance. Have you found that that is kind of easier now, or do you find yourself kind of more trapped behind your screen more than ever? No, I balance. I, I balance the amount of Zoom calls I take versus phone calls and other things. So um, I'm more in a you know I have a system now where I have a computer. I mean, I'm so I have a, I have a little stand to, to keep me focused. You know, so I can stand up and I can do my little exercises and things while I do my zoom calls oh very nice yeah see it's nice when we're not just sitting down the whole time i feel like that's the one aspect at least when you're in the office like there was always a reason to get up because you had to talk to someone or you're going to the lunchroom to get a coffee or whatever the case may be there was some type of movement so i find myself now at home the movement is very limited where you're really having to remind yourself okay it's been a few hours i should probably get up now just have some some sort of function in my body for the day so it's definitely a transition on that front i think for a lot of us (laughs) right 
So we want to get right into the questions that we have set aside for here, uh, Sean. So getting into a lot of the accomplishments that you've obviously had over the years, if you were to look back on your aspirations that you have now as a young teenager or adult, did you feel like this is the place where you were going to end up or what were your aspirations back at that time? Oh my God, I, I, I realized, I can remember the days where I, I prayed for being where I am today. You know, I, I never would have imagined when I was in high school that I would be in this moment, in this situation now. It's, it's truly a blessing. I'm, I'm, I'm thankful for all of the challenges that kind of propelled me into this moment. Reading from your bio here, it says you're a published author. So how did you decide that you're in the place in your kind of personal life or career that you wanted to become an author? You know, I think back in 2009, when I got my dis uh, doctorate from the George Washington University, I wrote the book, The Principal's Guide to the First 100 Days of the School Year. And that was because at, at the time, I was a principal supervisor and you know, I was going around giving people lots of advice on lots of things, but I found myself saying the same thing over and over and over again. And so I said, oh, maybe I should write a book about this to keep me from <laughs> constantly saying the same thing. <laughs> I think that aligns in more ways than one. But did you feel like there wasn't a lot of resources at the time then that you also had to put out that book? Was that another reason that there wasn't just this influx of all this knowledge that people could go acquire that having your book out there really gave people a more direct, realistic aspect of how to best acquire that position? Yeah, no, exactly. No, there, there are very few books out there for a brand new principal. And, you know, you get the job, they give you the keys, and then you kind of scratch your head and say, now, what the heck am I supposed to do now? <laughs> you know, so the book really helps new principals really think about instruction and think about their first hundred days. And as a result, it's used around the country in principal preparation programs, both at the university and uh, within within school districts and you know the second book that i wrote was much more personal uh, that one was really about after i left my experience as the superintendent in metro nashville public schools in tennessee you know people felt that i got a a bad deal there and and i, I asked the board to you know separate and just mutually separate and when i walked away you know there are so many people who were like oh my god you know can't believe this happened and you know he was he was doing good work and so forth and and I just wanted to write a book to really thank God to say listen sometimes you know bad things happen to good people but this isn't this isn't the first or only or last challenge that I will have in life and you know I, I wrote a book to really communicate that if you focus on your mission, you'll always have a job. If you focus on your job, you might miss your mission. And if you're faithful in hard times, you're always going to, God's going to kind of, you know, he's going to bless you and the blessings are going to come in the future. So, you know, the book really talks about all the pits and challenges and things that could have and should have helped me back, but didn't. And, and they didn't because your faith will always release your favor. And so uh, I think this is a book that reminds people that challenges are meant to be in your life, to build your character, to build your strength, and to give you wisdom. Uh, because you only get wisdom through going through some pain sometimes. But if you embrace it, if you embrace the challenges, 
and know that there's something better out there, you'll get through it. And you know, someday you'll look back on those challenges and say, ah, now I know why I went through that. I had to go through that to get to this. And, and I've lived that in, in my personal life. Very well said. So just kind of backtracking a bit, you kind of mentioned there that I guess almost the, the silly standard of becoming a principal is they to say, this is what you're doing now, here's the keys. But how does one actually become a principal? Is there kind of a prerequisite to that? Is it more of a promotional thing? Like, could you explain that to our listeners? Yeah, I mean, the typical way to become a principal is first become a teacher. And then after being a teacher for a certain amount of years, you you go, you get a master's degree, uh, typically in something like educational administration. And then, you know, within, within your school district, you get promoted. You know, you typically go from a teacher to a teacher leader to an assistant principal to a principal. That, that's the most common trajectory uh, to get a principalship. So obviously you really have to be a lover of education as you are yourself to really want to gear the child's education into the right perspective. So was that something that was driven because you've had such good teachers and many great influences from the educational perspective or was it the opposite that led you to this career? No, my, my, you know, my life's been sort of like Forrest Gump. <laughs> you know, I feel <laughs> like I've just, I feel like I've just kind of stumbled forward. Uh, quite honestly, uh, you know, I went to Lincoln University, which is America's oldest historically black college, and my goal was to become a medical doctor. You know, but I met a kid who couldn't read, and that that touched me. I felt like that was the first time God had spoken with me, and I switched my major from you know biology to English education, and 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 I've spent the past 24 years now, really trying to get it right for kids because I, I feel like if we could put a person on the moon, we should be able to teach a kid how to read. I'm not a conspiracy theorist person, uh, but, I, but I do believe that there are structures that systemically hold kids back uh, because we need cheap labor in America. I mean, America has been built upon cheap labor. And so if everybody could read, if everybody could do well, then there wouldn't be uh, people taking these minimum wage jobs. And so I think it's a real equity issue for us to really be able to focus uh, to, you know, ensure that all kids are, are ready and, and able to be successful, uh, particularly black and brown children and poor children in America. I just think they get neglected and, you know, there's a conspiracy to hold them back and we've just got to do more to break that cycle. Do you think there's a lot of resources kind of up and coming, if not already in place, but advocacy groups trying to break this stigma and kind of break this system to help these children? No, I don't think there are, there are enough. And I, I think that think that there are just greater forces holding us back than there are propelling us. But you know, having said this, I, I, I really do commend you know President Biden and. Vice President Kamala Harris, uh, because I do think they've made one of the biggest investments in education in, our, in, in America's history recently. And now it's up to educational leaders to use those dollars to actually get it right for kids. And I think in some places in America, I think we're going to see much better outcomes than, than we have seen in the past, because now there are dollars there to do that, but there has to be the skill and the will. 
And so it's always a political fight. When you have dollars, you know, you have politics and you have issues of power and control all at play. And so I think, you know, it's going to take leadership to get everybody aligned to really focus on some of the basic things that we know work for kids, like investments in early childhood education, investments in high quality professional development to ensure teachers can meet the needs of kids. I think, you know, thinking about how we utilize technology to really accelerate learning and meet kids where they are. And, you know, I think we we, we are not going to be able to go back to the same old way we were educating kids. And, you know, I, I see so many people who are, you know, desiring to go back to the way things were. Well, remember, the way things were, three out of four kids weren't reading on grade level. So that, that's not a place I'd want to go back to. Uh, you know, I'd, if there's any benefit of this pandemic, it should be that we're in a moment now where we can reconceptualize what education looks like and how we educate kids. That's definitely something I feel like is beneficial that we're able to use this time to make those changes, as you were saying. So it's difficult when, you, as you said, all these other aspects are coming into play where it's not something as clear as okay, is a direct line to, okay, we need, children need more tools for their education, okay, let's give them that. There's these external forces that are kind of playing into that, that are making it a little bit more difficult to really reach that end goal, as opposed to going that straight line, you're going on like a million different zigzags to get to that end point. So as you've said previously that you are really passionate about the educational system, as your resume has shown as well. So the new bill that you were talking about with Kamala Harris and Biden that they put into effect. That was the stimulus bill, correct? Correct. So tell us maybe a little bit more about that and why you are so passionate about some of those different avenues. So as you mentioned, it's like the investing of capacity with the teachers and principals. Some of the aspects were universal pre-K supporting early literacy initiatives, uh, the elimination of the digital divide. Another aspect was high quality tutoring and just investing in the overall socio-emotional learning. So a lot of aspects there, but I feel like maybe we can touch on some of those and why each of those are equally as important to one another. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think we have woefully underinvested in American public education, first off. I think most districts don't have enough resources or never have had enough resources to really meet the needs of the children uh, that they serve. And in America, you know, if you come from, you know, an affluent family uh, or you had wealth, then, you know, you, you could get an adequate education. But if you didn't, you just got what, you know, what was available. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I think now that there are dollars and there, there's still, I mean, we're, we're trying to, we're playing catch up now. But now I think there's a moment and opportunity where we can focus. Like, you know, we know that for every dollar that we put in early childhood education, the return on investment is, you know, anywhere from $4 to $8 that you get back. Uh, So hopefully districts will be putting dramatically much more money in ensuring that there's universal pre-K, high quality universal pre-K and early learning opportunities for kids. Also, I think there is a, you know, there was a recent study that came out from the Wallace Foundation that showed that the effects of a high quality principal are much higher than what was previously reported. 
it was previously reported that principals are second only to teachers in terms of ensuring high quality outcomes for for children so having said that i mean there have there must be you know stronger investments in teacher training and we've got to pay teachers i mean that the average teacher makes 40 to fifty thousand dollars and and over the course of his or her lifetime you know in many places particularly in poor states will only make up to about eighty thousand to ninety thousand dollars in their in their career i mean that's abysmal for the type of work that they do and how important they are and you know you're not going to attract the best and brightest people in education if you go to a place like Howard University where you know I serve as a, an assistant professor you know it's fifty thousand dollars a year to go to that school so you're you're spending two hundred thousand dollars to get a forty thousand dollar job and you know you'll never pay that loan debt off if you know, you don't you don't come from means. So, I mean, we've got to pay teachers what they're worth. I think that's that's important. Also, I think we, we have to look at how we're utilizing technology. You know, once upon a time, tutoring, for example, was something that middle class and rich families have always had access to and have, have always employed. I mean, I can't tell you how many kids go to places like, you know, Kumon and, and mm-hmm. the other to, to be prepared yeah. in math and reading and science and things of that nature. But poor children, you know, have rarely had access to that. And, and as a result, you see the, the difference in, you know, test scores and test preparation and things of that nature. And I think so. I think there's an opportunity for school districts to recognize that and, and utilize technologies that are available now to offer tutoring services to all children and ensure that there's that individualized support for things that you know, they, they just can't keep up with, you know, during the course of, of, of the day. And, you know, then I also think we have to pay attention to the social emotional needs of children. If, if we have not learned anything in this pandemic is that the isolation that it has caused in many places, you know, results in many more children being depressed or anxious or demonstrating some other ailments. And we've got to provide resources, uh, not only to students, uh, but to teachers and staff, uh, because staff have been stressed. I mean, I I know in the midst of the pandemic, as teachers were thinking about and and school districts were telling teachers it was time to come back to school. I mean, those teachers exhibited extreme stress thinking about what they do with their own children and yeah. how they you know manage their own children and what's happening at home while they're trying to attend to you know other people's 30 children. other kids <laughs> yeah for sure so i actually have a question then off of that due to obviously the pandemic a lot of school boards and school districts had moved to online learning so are the districts in your area the school boards are they still currently online or have mo- majority of them gone to back to school at this point, a majority of them have given families the option to go back to school in person or to continue online learning. And, you know, I think that option should continue. Online learning has worked for a lot of children in this country, and it has not worked for a lot of other children in this country. And, and it, it, the range, it just depends. But I think this is a moment where I think the nation needs to rethink how we're educating children and, you know, do children have to be in buildings for seven, eight hours a day? Do we have to 
you know, have the same way of doing things? Or, you know, is there a new frontier for online learning, allowing kids to work and, and participate in internship opportunities and, you know, have, have experiences that they were not afforded uh, before? I kind of have a possible dumb question with the online learning. No such thing as a dumb question. <laughs> Vicky, yeah, did you learn anything in school? There's no dumb questions. That is true. Actually, I had a few teachers that would debate that. but <laughs> 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 No, so my question is, so last time I did online learning in college, basically. So we had, I just had that you get the syllabus. This is your reading material. Make sure you do the board every week, hand in your projects on time. And that was kind of about it. There wasn't like a lot of guidance. So I'm just curious, how does that work for younger children, like elementary to, I guess, middle school where the, the independent learning aspect isn't necessarily there yet? Yeah, I mean, so there are two different types of online delivery. There's the online delivery where people just kind of put stuff up and you independently work through it. And then there's the online learning where there's a live teacher and the teacher is instructing and sharing materials and, it, you know, there's, there's that human interaction. Yeah, I personally think the second option with the teacher and the human interaction is much better than the first option mm -hmm. where you just have things, you just have content online and you work at your own pace to complete it. So, you know, I think for early learners. I mean, it's still hard, but the face-to-face -face just over the computer, you know, you can, you can deliver a decent level of high-quality instruction, particularly if you engage with technology and you, you get kids engaged to see things, practice things, write things out on the computer. I mean, I think for early learners, right, they, don't, they haven't taken a typing class, so there'll be struggles there. And I think there'll be impact on, you know, their ability to write. But I don't even think they teach handwriting and things like that in school anymore. I think that that was a, a, a thing of the past. I'm sad that's not a thing anymore. I feel like that was a great skill to have. When I see kids, when they can't sign their names and they have to print them, I'm like, oh my gosh, it's because they don't teach it anymore. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My, my kids, they don't use script. That's not in their, their repertoire of skills. <laughs> nowadays and I, you know and i don't know if you necessarily need it i mean that, that's up for maybe debate. not maybe it's like a preference thing i guess <laughs> <laughs> there are ways to ensure high quality online instruction i just think the pivot last year was so sudden mm -hmm. that many mm -hmm. districts didn't train people they just went from in person to putting worksheets up online and that's not good and and teachers to their defense, weren't trained or prepared to be in an online format. But now we're a year later, there's no excuse for people not to be prepared and trained and figuring out if you're going to do it that way, how do you do it well? Like you said, a lot of resources have obviously been implemented over the course of this past year. So is it something that's available to all teachers like these online resources or is it per school that they have their own resources that they really have had to make up during the course of this past year? Well, there's a lot of stuff out there now. I mean, there are a lot of people selling good stuff and there are a lot of people selling bad stuff. And, you know, I think there are a lot of free webinars and professional opportunities out there. And I think school districts 
should take the lead in curating and helping teachers identify the good versus the bad. Pivoting back to you, throughout your career with your, I guess, the world of educational reform, as you like to call it, what accomplishment are you the most proud of? I, you know, I think I'm, I'm most proud of the fact that I've always focused on the kids that were in front of me. I have always tried to provide resources to kids where they needed them, you know, and you know, and as a result, we've, we've had some success. And I, and I think I've, I've tried to just, you know, like I said, see the kids that were in front of me and let them know they're loved, they're cared for, and we, we expect a lot of them and pushed. And when they didn't get it, not blame them, but ask, what could we be doing better? As we're just concluding on the questions that we had for you today, Sean, is there any final points that you want to leave our listeners with? No, I, I really think any anybody who's been through some difficult challenges and needs a dose of inspiration really should read Finding the Joseph Within. Uh, you can get it at um, bookbaby.com if you just did a Google search for Sean Joseph and bookbaby.com or of course you could go to good old Amazon. <laughs> they have it they have it there as well. We love Amazon. I think that's probably go to. <laughs> <laughs> It's yeah, because <laughs> yeah. the book is really more about inspiring you to push through the hard times that you're inevitably going to have in your life. And, you know, I know, I mean, I pick it up a lot just to read through some of the scripture uh, that's in there to remind me that, you know, though we may be in a tough moment, we'll get through it. And, and I don't think there is a, power, a more powerful story uh, than the story of Joseph. His ability and desire to just do right and forgive those that didn't do right by him. Thank you for joining us on the podcast today. We really appreciated it. And I think we had some good conversations that are really imminent to the times that we're in right now. So thank you for coming on. Thank you. Thank you for having me.